Welcome to the Detoxicity Podcast, a show that tries to reframe the conversation around masculinity, NBD. My name is Mike Joseph. We are now officially in year two of Detoxicity, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be trying out some different ideas. Stay tuned. Of course, I welcome your feedback. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and leave comments on the show. Also, Follow me on social media. I am Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me at detoxpod at gmail.com. I'm always on the hunt for new ideas. So if you have suggestions, you know someone who'd be interested in being on the show, or you yourself would like to be a guest, please reach out. And as I record this, we are still deep into the COVID-19 pandemic, although people are now starting to get vaccinated and we are moving towards the new normal. Please make sure you're being safe and looking out for one another, pandemic or no pandemic. Over the past few months, I've been asking friends for their honest opinions about detoxicity and what can be done to improve it. Several people have mentioned that although they enjoy the podcast, I don't do enough talking. Of course, these people are my friends and they may be tuning in because they want to hear me talk. Really, my goal with this show is to give the person being interviewed space to tell their story, and I'm just trying to move their story along and not butt in too much. We're going to turn the tables a little bit on this episode. I'm the guy in the hot seat, and the person doing the interviewing is a former guest. Louis Perlman was all the way back in episode four. Uh, he's a writer and actor based here in New York City, and he hosts his own, uh, he hosts several podcasts on his own, actually. In this episode, he interviews me about my upbringing in a somewhat repressive environment, being bullied as a kid, my passion for music, and a recent middle-aged personal discovery. Uh, you'll hear more about that if you check out the whole episode. So here we go. This is an interview with me. All right. So my name is Louis Perlman. I was a former guest on the Detoxicity podcast, and I'm joined today by the host, Mike Joseph. Hello, Mike. Hello, Louis. So I, I host my own podcast, and I've done a bunch of interviews with people before. So this is an interesting one for me because of the fact that you are the host of this podcast, and this is the first time that you are being interviewed on your own podcast. That's correct. I This kind of came to be from having conversations with other people who were fans of the podcast and me asking them what they thought would make the podcast better. And, you know, when I created the podcast, I really envisioned it as a way to get to know other people but a lot of people that listen regularly are like, well, Mike, what about you? Huh? Yep. They want so, a little more about your background and your life, right? Yeah. So it's a way to get folks to know a little bit more about me and keep the podcast fresh. And I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. 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 I'm very happy to be part of this experiment. And that's a good thing for our listeners at, you know, our listeners at home. I'm a, I feel like I'm a very old fashioned podcast host always. I'm always like, our listeners at our home. Our listeners at home. Yeah, like I'm like I'm hosting like a 1940s big band radio show. Yeah, it's, it's like, very it's very game show. Game yes. show host. Well, I'm very shticky. In, in the tradition of all the great Canadian game show hosts of our lifetime. That's right. Alan, well, Alan Thick hosted a game show, right? Trebek. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, Trebek had has way more cool than I do, though. I had way more cool. <laughs> Trebek was so suave the whole time. Don't and sell yourself short, Louis. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, for, for our listeners, this is a bit of an experiment. We're going to go into tangents like we just did. I do have some stuff I wanted to ask Mike about, and we will see how much we get to and how much this just becomes an organic conversation. Cool, cool, cool. 
So that being said, I'd like to start you with, you know, Mike, you were, had a kind of an interesting, somewhat unique childhood. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about some of your earliest memories and who you were raised by and, and what was, what was an influence on you at a very young age? Huh. I, I can't really place first memories. Mm-hmm. I, I assume that there are people out there who can actually identify experiencing something for the first time. And for me, it's kind, kind of a jumble. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's not really anything I can say. This is the first time I remember this. I, I was raised by my grand. Well, I was raised by, initially by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, until I was eight. And then I lived with my mom and my stepdad for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then I moved back to live with my grandparents until I was 17. And, you know, I've lived on my own since then. So mm-hmm. it, it, it was kind of extended family, kind of community, different sort of upbringing, certainly not the usual mom, dad, house, dog type situation. Yeah, but I mean, all the people that were raised mom, dad, house, dog type situation, you know, turned out that they had no coping skills for the real world. So. <laughs> Is that is that fact? I, I don't know. Yes, about I'm that. laying it down on your podcast. <laughs> I'm speaking in truths and absolutes. <laughs> I mean, you can also, I mean, your your upbringing is your upbringing, and there's no absolute. Obviously, I know we're we're kidding in terms of who you were brought up by, but being brought up by committee is, is an interesting experience. How do you feel? that being brought up by committee made you the person that you are today? Or can you pinpoint any specific instances or things that happened that you thought were interesting and maybe a little different than your peers in the way that you were brought up? One thing I've thought about recently, the last episode of the podcast that I put up at the time that we were recording was an episode with this uh, gentleman by the name of Jermaine Charles. And mm-hmm. in the episode, he talks a lot about community-based living. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that really kind of sticks out to me is the idea that your family is really your chosen family and not necessarily the family that you were, are, are, are birthed into. So you kind of pick the people that you want to be around, the people that make you feel most welcome and create an intentional community around them. And I feel like that's the way that ideally I would want to live. And I think that comes in part from not having the typical mom, dad upbringing. There were always other people in the house when I was growing up. And most of them were blood relatives, aunts, uncles, um, cousins, whoever but some of them were not. And as much as I value privacy and independence, and I value them a lot, there's still something to me to be said about everybody pitching in towards the greater good of a community and bringing each other up, as opposed to there being just like one nuclear family that exists in almost this 
isolated state. Or, or almost like, this is probably extreme, but almost in a cult-like state. <laughs> where it's sort of just like, that's the family unit and no one else shall pass type situation. Well, I think that there is a, a shame that's associated with nuclear family units in terms of needing to ask for help outside of the unit. And there's something to be said to relieve the pressure of not having to be all things to one child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm wondering if were there specific needs that you can remember being met by different family members when you were living with your grandparents? Yes. During the second period of time that I lived with my grandparents, my youngest aunt had in that time gotten married and her and her husband lived on the top floor of our house. And they they sort of co-parented along with my grandparents. Uh-huh. And I think a lot of my maternal and paternal needs were met by them as well as kind of older sibling type needs because my aunt is only 15 years older than I am. So it was like a cross between a mom and a big sister. So there's just a different type of relationship than a typical aunt-nephew relationship, typical mother-son relationship, typical big sister-little-brother type relationship. It was all three at once, kind of, in, in different ways. And that's kind of cool. You're sort of lucky in that way. Yeah. I mean, I my, my aunt in particular, her and her family are, are the closest relatives to me now. Mm -hmm. And it's still kind of that really interesting space between mom and big, big sister. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, big question. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you, do you get some of your, you have really, you have really great taste. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Did you. you. You're welcome. Did you get some of that taste, do you think, from your aunt? Or do you think that came from some other places or influences? I feel like your taste, it feels something I feel we have similarly is that your taste sort of does stem from like some like very, not maybe very early childhood, but like childhood, young adolescent memories and feelings that imprinted on you. My taste in music is definitely, my aunt and her husband had a very big role in that. They were both crazy about music. When I was living with them, you know, again, being 15 years older. So if I was 11, they were 26. That's right. And, and they're going out to clubs at night and partying and, you know, getting a taste of all the new music and, and consuming all of the new media, you know, before they decided to settle down and start having kids, they were definitely the tastemakers in my life. So I, I do think that even in, 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 even aside of music, aside from music, any kind of media, home design, mm -hmm. a, a lot of that stuff was influenced by them and the way that they, they lived as, as young adults. So th this was in Brooklyn, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What neighborhood was this? East Flatbush, not east. too far from where I am now, just a couple of miles east. But yeah, I mean, it was late 80s, early 90s, 
very interesting. Like we were in upwardly mobile. We we were a lower class um, or middle lower class family. Yep. I mean, we, you know, my grandparents owned a house, but we were not rich by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, my, my aunt and her husband were aspirational and they definitely, they busted their asses working and going to grad school and they owned cars. And it was, you know, my neighborhood was, was sort of a mixture of lower middle class, primarily immigrant families. And it felt like most of the people, or at least the people that I admired or that I, I looked at growing up were aspirational. There were people who were looking to kind of make something of themselves. So that just kind of desire to be something was, was ingrained in me at, at a pretty early age. Do you feel like that desire was ultimately a positive aspect of your life, negative, mixed? How, how do you feel about that kind of pressure, seeing that from different people? It was certainly well-meaning. As someone who was born to immigrant parents and my entire family were people who were not born in this country, mm -hmm. the desire to succeed and sort of pursue the quote-unquote American dream was, was very strong. I think there was a focus placed on success, meaning make a lot of money, as opposed to success being related to self-fulfillment mm -hmm. and personal fulfillment. Sure. So I, it, it was well-meaning, but it wasn't exactly the right message. Yeah. I mean, we're talking uh, the 80s, right? Yeah. This is like, yeah, I mean, this is like story of I feel a lot of different types of people and social strata in the 80s that you know that this the ultimate goal was to be financially successful and that ended up failing a lot of people mm -hmm. yeah so that's 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 totally understandable I mean the good thing is that I from a numbers perspective I had no idea what financial success meant yeah which is yeah so, well i still have no idea from <laughs> what financial success means yeah so as i really viewed success as independence like having a roof over my head being able to pay my bills and and, and that kind of thing yeah so for me making you know 750 an hour for a while but hey i can pay the rent like i'm poor but i can pay the rent I can mm -hmm. afford to buy myself a beer or two on the weekends. Yep. I can keep my CD collection full. So to me, that was that was success. And that also is great because I think that clearly something was instilled with you that taught you perspective and like grat and, and like proper amounts of gratitude in that you sound sounded like, you know, you were very happy, despite the fact that maybe by traditional, well, not, yeah, you you just raised your eyebrows at me when I said very happy, <laughs> just for people who can't see us through the Zoom. Okay, but but that you you felt there, it sounds like there was a sense of stability when you started earning an income that other people might have been completely freaked out by the fact that they were earning seven fifty an hour. Right. Yeah. I had no, I, I don't know what the word is. Some people get entry-level jobs and they're making forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, and they're fast tracking. Like, well, I want a management position. I want an upper management position. I'm not making enough money. This is not enough. And for me, 
it was like, hey, as long as I get from day to day and I can maintain my independence, then I'm doing okay, mm -hmm. relatively speaking. Like the goal, for me, the goal wasn't to be rich or have any sort of, you know, uh, uh, management position or whatever. I, I didn't aspire to that. I aspired to not be homeless. Yeah. And, and I aspired to not have to go back to my family's living space. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted your own, you wanted your own space. Yeah. That was enough to keep you motivated. Yeah. That totally. Like I, I, I wanted my own life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So sp speaking of which sort of during the time that you were raised, before you went and lived with your mom and stepdad, how much was your mom uh, a part of your life at that time? To, to an extent. I mean, mm -hmm. I would spend summers with her. She would come to visit on occasion. She was living in Michigan and she still does. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, okay. Yeah. And for a while she was, when I was really young, she was in the Air Force. So oh, I would only cool. get to see her when she was on leave. So I was at that point used to seeing my mom maybe twice a year, three times a year, and then spending the summer with her. So she wasn't, she was not always present, but she was there, if that makes any sense. Yeah, Just there, was, like there was a the, stability to it. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't something in your life that was causing you like distress. Right. It wasn't yeah. at that time. It wasn't tumultuous. Yeah. It just felt like this is the way it is. Yeah, this is how my life is. Yeah. Right. And that then that speaks volumes to everybody else in your family to Yeah. I mean my grandparents like to normalize it more than anything. Yeah. I mean my grandparents and very specifically my grandmother did a lot to make that experience feel normal to me. I mean, I knew that when I got home from school at three o'clock, my grandmother was going to be home. Yeah. So there was never never any question of stability from from that respect yeah yeah absolutely it's very important mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> and then how do you feel that your life changed when you <laughs> moved in with your mom and your stepdad how how was that for you it was trying to condense it, it just feels like such a a futile thing it was it really upended my life in a lot of ways. I I went from living in Brooklyn to living in Michigan, which is a culture shock for an 8-year-old. Yeah. You know, existing in integrated spaces for the first time in my life. Sure. Existing in spaces where I was bullied for the first time oh. in my life, you know, <laughs> existing in a space with a mom dad sisters and and sister and and brother space for the first time in sure, my life sure and trying to adjust to all of that it, it was an experiment that ultimately ended up not working for a variety of reasons you would think that that situation would be more stable and and maybe it was but it was also much more of a negative situation yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i mean bullying i think that it's just worth saying can really upend a situation in a way that i feel at the time wasn't completely understood by oh, not at all society yeah not at all yeah I, I i think with my mom and my stepdad i think their reaction to the bullying 
to some extent was like, well, then you need to learn how to fight back. That was my parents' reaction to bullying as right. well. And it was not, it didn't work for me. Literally. Right. Oh. So it kind of makes you feel like you getting the crap kicked out of you is your fault. That's right. I agree. Which is certainly not the case. And it also makes you feel unprotected. That's right. And, and your parents are your protectors. And to be in a situation where like, you're two floors down in the lobby getting punched in the face and you go back and sort of report what's going on. And they're just kind of like, Oh, well, you know, you should have punched, you know, if he hits, you hit him back. Mm -hmm. It just Mm kind of feels like you're, you're being fed to the wolves. Yeah. Yeah. That futility. Absolutely. Were, Were you bullied because you had come from a different place and the kids didn't get you? Do you know? I don't deal know. Was. I don't know if I it mean, was that. I, I was. It's hard bullied. to distill this too. There might yeah. not be an answer. Yeah. I think the two main reasons. Well, I think that was part of it. I was also kind of a nerdy kid. Sure. And I think you know, being a kid who wore glasses and was kind of awkward and had acne had something to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the kids sensed not necessarily queerness in terms of sexuality, but queerness in terms of sensitivity Mm -hmm. that they read as not boyish enough for them. Yep. Yep. And that led to some bullying as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then as I got older, I think I actually was bullied for being bullied. Of course. It just becomes (laughs) the cycle. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is the kid that we do this to. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So how so how long were you there for? Uh, a little over three years. A little over three years. Mm-hmm. And then did you make the decision to move back to Brooklyn? As I understand it, and I don't necessarily know the entire story, sure. is that my aunt and her husband came to visit. They came mm-hmm. to Michigan. They got, without seeing anything concrete, they got the impression that I was being mistreated uh-huh. and spoke to my grandparents and arranged for me to be brought back to New York. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that was cool with your mom and your stepdad. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they sure. sent back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there might have been there might have been more of a conversation that happened beyond. Yeah, your I mean purview. I, I yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not privy to what those conversations were necessarily. I know that they happened, but ultimately yeah, I ended up coming back to New York. And did you feel a change when you got back in your life? How was that for you? Yes. I came in expecting things to go back to the way they were, and they didn't. I'd also picked up some really bad habits sure. uh, during the time that I lived with my mom and my stepdad and had had anger that I hadn't had previously and just a lot of different emotions. And I was an 11-year-old kid. You know, I was yes. in the middle of puberty and discovering myself, and they my grandparents inherited a different mic than the mic that had lived there three years prior. Yes. So it was just a, a, a whole bunch of things that took some time to get accustomed to. All right. Yeah. All right. So here we are. We're at 11-year-old Mike mm-hmm. here. And yeah, so that stage, do, do, do you remember it being a, a, a happier stage for you <laughs> or not? I mean... Uh, I feel like for the years between 11 and about 14 are just like 
very hard for people almost across the board. How how was it for you? They were. Mm -hmm. I, I was not given a roadmap for how to survive puberty. Sure. So I, I was just, I sort of folded up into myself a little bit. I mean, it, it, I didn't know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was this preteen or early teenager who already had like screwed up social skills, mm -hmm. had really bad skin, already felt different and alienated in a lot of ways. And, you know, just didn't have any concept of the world at all. So it was, it wasn't so much of a bad time as I think the couple of years prior to that were a worse time. Mm -hmm. It was a very awkward and confusing time. Do you remember sort of your first experiences being attracted to members of the same sex and how that made you feel at the time? Not specifically. I remember knowing that I was attracted to men mm -hmm. slash other boys probably around the time I was six or seven even. Sure, yeah. I remember we had this, this older relative that came to visit for, could have been a couple of weeks, could have been a couple of months. I, I don't know what the time frame was, but I used to love, like, he would shave in the morning and I would sit there and just watch him shave. And it was, it was an attraction of some sort. And I don't know if it was, it was somewhere between a crush and like hero worship. Sure. But uh, yeah, I, it, I, I've told people before, I knew that I was queer before I knew what sex was. Yes. Yeah. For you, there is just this inherent feeling. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I knew that, you know, that I wanted, that I felt a certain closeness and a certain, again, not definitively sexual attraction. Like, I, I feel like I knew I had a, a romantic attraction to men before I knew I had a sexual attraction to men. Mm. And I just, then, yeah. Was and, that sort of reinforced when you started having like sexual thoughts and sexual feelings, would you yeah. say? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we talked about this a little bit on my appearance on the podcast that like my reaction to that for me was like, well, I know what's happening with me and my brain, but I don't think the world is ready for this. <laughs> so I'm going to keep this to myself for a while until I feel like it's safe to deal with it. How did you, did you have sort of go through sort of a similar thought process or how, how was that? Very much you? so. Very mm -hmm. much so. I grew up in a very, masculine not explicitly homophobic but homophobic environment sure the, not that there was like there was no tolerance but it just felt like queer desire in anyone did not exist not in my neighborhood not in my family for sure not in any social circle that i was a part of i did not meet another functioning queer man probably until I was 19. I grew up in an environment that was, again, very like, very ma machismo, like masculine centric. And any kind of perceived feminine behavior, whether that be having feelings. Sure. Or actually sleeping with men was, was pretty taboo. 
Of sure, yeah. Now, being the sort of kid you were growing into being, and not being, you know, one hundred percent machismo presenting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, how do you feel that your family parsed through that? Were they cool with that? Was there any moments that were hard or? It's it's interesting, right? Because my aunt, I had a conversation with my aunt maybe like a year and a half, two years ago. And she was like, I never had any indication that you were attracted to men. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my mom texted me recently and she said, I always knew. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. Yep. I, I actually surmise that my mom and stepdad tried to judge me from certain behaviors. Uh-huh. Yes. Because they thought that I might have some same-sex desires. And, and you know, they, they wanted to sort of turn me away from that. So I think... There was an inkling coming from some people, whereas other people didn't, you know, either just weren't aware of it or were just bl had blind spots in regards to that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people maybe just were looking out, maybe even looking out for it, maybe because it was a little more scary for them. So they were looking right. out for it. Yeah, right. whereas other people... It just didn't cross their mind because it right. wasn't really a concern for them either way, ultimately. And, right. And yeah. I think it's funny because my aunt is, she's the youngest person in the family. She's the youngest of my grandmother, my grandparents, six kids. And she's the most Americanized and the only one who went away to college and she had gay friends. But either it never crossed her mind or I never presented. Whereas my mom, who did not have a college education, who... Yep you know, whatever it like, she picked up on it. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. she figured it out. Yeah. So during all of this and sort of into your, you know, teenage, later teenage years, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably getting into music. I mean, I've been into music since I could walk. So, so yeah, let's talk about this. This is a through line that we haven't really touched on yet, yeah. right? What are some of your memories surrounding music and and some stuff that has sort of, carried you and propelled you through up until, you know, up through your, through your early life. When I was born, my mom was 19. Yeah. And most of my, well, all of my aunts and uncles were ranging in age from like 15 to maybe like 23. So mm -hmm. premium music, music buying years. So there was always a stack of records in the house mm -hmm. and I, for whatever reason, was immediately drawn to that. So from the age of like three, four years old, I remember sitting in front of the record player, just watching my relatives like put put records on, take them off. We used to have these huge basement house parties and music just always seemed to like draw people together. Mm -hmm. And I, from that point, I think I just sort of fell in love with music. I, I can't tie it to one one record one instance of anything happening i just remember always being surrounded by music whether it was watching american bandstand or soul train on tv or spinning records in in the living room or when i was christmas of of 1981 when i was five years old my christmas present was like a fisher price record player 
Yes. And I, I wore that I also, thing. I also had a Fisher Price record player. Yeah, yes. wore that thing to the ground. Like I, that was nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I was so in love with that thing. I I've been looking on eBay to see if I can buy one just for nostalgia's sake. Now, any luck? Yeah, there's a few around. They're a little expensive and they don't sound good, but <laughs> I, I will probably end up with one in the next little while. I would right be on. surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, the Fisher Price record player that really made listening to music very accessible for yeah. young kids and yeah. something that could take a tumble and still play a record as well, yeah. which is kind of impressive. Yeah. And. So you're saying that you weren't able to connect, you know, one particular album or song to your initial love, but were there certain things that were sort of in heavy rotation for you, different things sort of as you were growing up that you can remember? When I was a really little kid, I, I mean, the first musician I fell in love with was Michael Jackson. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's an ego thing because we have the same first name. Sure. And when you're three years old, you're like, oh, there's another Michael. Like, you know, that's cool. Yeah. But he was the first singer, the first musical artist that I really, really connected to. Mm -hmm. And I can remember when he sang Billie Jean and did the moonwalk for the first time on Motown 25, I was, I was six years old. And the day that that aired, we bought our first VCR. Sure. And I remember my grandmother telling me like, you can't watch this tonight, but we're going to record it and you can watch it after school tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And my aunts actually snuck me out of bed that night and let me watch it live. Wow. And wow. I somehow, in my excitement, let out that I had watched it the the night before. And I got in trouble for like two minutes. Sure. <laughs> and then they let me watch it again on the VCR. So I can I I that's one of the memories I can very, very distinctly point at. But I there's there's other stuff like I can remember, you know, I can remember seeing Sylvester on TV the first time sure. and, and being completely confused yes. or seeing Prince on TV for the first time being completely confused. So, yeah, I mean, there's just there's tons of, of performers and, and songs that I have distinct memories to. But in terms of there being somebody who just kind of like rocked my world when I was a little kid, it would have been Michael Jackson for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, that's something I feel like that moonwalk moment just to touch on it for a second i i i feel that when you watch him moonwalk on that stage you can like feel reality shifting around him yeah yeah it I is think it's that, iconic it is it's it's iconic and it's also just there's something about it where he's harnessing like an energy that is beyond him and sort of beyond the entire situation that he's in <laughs> at that moment you know yeah. what i mean like yeah totally yeah and, and you know that's such a great thing to remember like that's <laughs> that's the real meat and potatoes of like yeah why music is wonderful yeah is, totally is, is that moment so when let's flash forward a little bit when did you come to the realization this is a world i could maybe work in this is maybe something that i could do and make money through the fact that this is an interest of mine and a, and a passion of mine good question i'm not sure I 
from the time I was a teenager, I wanted or an early teenager, I feel like I wanted to work in a record store. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I ever get a summer job or, you know, can make a few bucks here and there, like stocking shelves or whatever, I would love to do that. And then maybe one day I'll own one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I was uh, 17, I got hired to work in a record store and that sort of started my career. But I didn't, at the time, I definitely didn't know that there were opportunities to work in the record business that didn't involve being an artist or working in a record store. Or these other tiers of what yeah. happens from, <laughs> yeah. the, from the artist writing and singing a song to the consumer being sold yeah. a record. Yeah. So when did that sort of come about where you realized, oh, there really is this professional world out there. As I began my career, I would see people sort of coming in and out that worked for labels and, you know, were salespeople or, you know, had all of these different positions in in the record industry. And that sort of when it hit me that there was this world between the the person singing the song and the person selling the song that I was completely unaware of and that that community was probably bigger than the artist community and the record store community. There's just so much in between. So it probably wasn't until I became a professional, until I was, you know, in my late teens that I realized that all of these other different parts of the puzzle existed. Yeah. And and then from there, how did you, I know you sort of had some cool mentors and some experiences that led to you feeling that there was an amount of stability in your life working in, in, the, in the music industry. So yeah, who are some of those people and, and how did that happen for you? My, my biggest mentor in terms of the music industry is, is a gentleman by the name of Craig Chapman, who I worked for. He was the manager of one of the record stores that I worked in and then promoted me to manager and he you know got promoted to being a district manager. But he was the first black man mm-hmm. that I ever saw in a position of power that really wielded that power in a way that was intelligent and not over the top aggressive. And, you know, not that I'm a super respectability politics type person, but he was, he's always the smartest person in the room. Uh huh. Yeah. Always the smartest person in the room, the most articulate person in the room, and just was completely an inspiration in terms of having somebody to look up to and also took the time to mentor me, even though I don't know that there was an active, at least at first, not an active, let me mentor this kid. Sure. sure, sure, sure. But it definitely became, Hey, look, I'm going to lead by example and you've got skills. So I'm going to kind of teach you the game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I met him in 1996, so 25 years ago. You know, I was 19 going on 20. And he just kind of took me under his wing. And I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about sort of social relating to people. That you know, should be taught that nobody teaches yeah, you. Yeah, stuff that should be yeah. taught in school and, yeah. and is not. Not only did I learn a lot from him, but he gave me 
confidence in my own intelligence. Wow. Yeah. Well put. I mean, what could you better, more could you ask for in a mentor yeah. and confidence in your own abilities and in your own intelligence? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's definitely something that a lot of their intelligence is not reinforced enough. Right. So during this whole time, here you are, you're this young man in this, in this sort of, you know, segueing into this world that has ended up being your whole life. You are also, uh, a few different things are happening. You, you were going to school at the time, right? As well. I was, I, was, I dropped out you pretty dropped early out. on. Okay, yeah, cool, because cool. I, I, I moved out to live on my own. Yes. And between school and working full time and trying to pay rent, mm -hmm. like it was just, it was too much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe the school part wasn't feeling totally necessary. Yeah. I was like, I already have a job. Yep. Yep. So I'm going to just concentrate on my job and paying rent. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and you never went back, right? I never was went it? back. I, I regret yeah. it. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, I was kind of hoping you'd say, and I don't regret it because yeah. I got a different type of education, but you do regret it. So I regret talk it. about that for a moment. <laughs> so here, here are two reasons. The two main reasons that I regret it. One, because I missed out on that whole college social interaction combined with freedom. Sure. Yep. And the second piece is because my career would probably be five years ahead of where it is, if not 10. Yeah, because if, of just, just that piece of paper more yeah. than anything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think intelligence-wise, I missed out on a lot. I would agree um, with that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think maybe some some business management type stuff. Sure. That I, I don't know as well. And maybe some computer stuff I don't know as well. But I think I I, I gained that plus some in terms of life experience and being able to put one foot in front of the other foot by myself. So during all of this, you're in this industry, this new industry, you're working, you got a roof over your head, you're paying your rent. Are you able to begin to express yourself as a queer man in this, in this environment? How was that for you at the time? I, I felt for a lot of that time as I was leading a double life. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't fully come out until I was maybe 29 or 30. Sure. But I had like 10 years of being situationally out. <laughs> Can you describe that in more detail? That's I was a out. great expression. <laughs> I was out to certain people and not yep. out to others. Sure. Like, you know, most of my friend group knew that I was queer. Mm -hmm. But many of my coworkers did not. Sure. And my family did not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was a weird situation of having to come out of the closet, put yourself back in the closet, come out of the closet, put yourself back in the closet, so on, so on and so forth. Yeah. And I had, you know, I had not doubts, but misgivings yeah. throughout that time myself about being out. A lot of it kind of predated predated the internet, uh, certainly predated social media. You know, my late teens and early 20s, so the period when I first started to explore things sexually coincided with sort of the second half of the pre-meds AIDS boom. Sure. In New yeah. York City. So there was 
a lot of reticence in regards to that. Yeah, and, I'm sure a lot of fear. Yeah, a lot yeah. of fear. And one thing that you mentioned during our, our first interview, which always stuck in my head, and you articulated it way better than I, I could have, was feeling like you didn't really feel like a part of the gay men community, the gay male community. Yeah. And because of that, I, I just always felt different. So a lot of the struggles with my sexuality were due to a combination of that and sort of the fear of the fear of, of being out and being rejected by people, the fear of death. Yeah, of course. And yeah, and safety. And, yeah. Just like base safety issues. Yeah, yeah. it was just a, a super toxic combination of things that led to me, I guess, stretching out my coming out time for a, a long, long period of time. Once you were fully out, which it sounds like you were late 20s, early 30s, mm -hmm. was it a relief? After all yes. of that. Yeah. Oh, 500%. It's so, I wish that anyone who is in the closet about anything could experience the feeling of not having to hide things from people. Sure. Like when yeah. you, when you meet me, you get me, mm -hmm. you don't get me minus a couple of things or me with an asterisk. You mm -hmm. get me. Mm -hmm. And that way I don't have to remember stories that I made up. I don't have to deal with the emotional baggage of having to play a role that isn't really me. Like you're getting Mike when you experience Mike. So there's just, there's so much freedom in that. Yeah. Uh, Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And and it really does take its not only its mental toll, but its physical toll. Yeah. On the body. Absolutely. And not having that anymore is incredibly it's it's just good for you. It's good yeah. for you health wise, I would say. Yeah. It's just I mean, not to play on words with the title of this podcast, but <laughs> it, it to keep all that shit in is so toxic. And the thing is, I mean, this isn't fact, but this is what I believe the more you hold that stuff in, the more like it rots your insides. And yep. I feel like any kind of repression, any personal type of personal repression like that, eventually it comes out. And the more you hold it in, the worse way it comes out. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I've made this comparison before, all of those politicians who uh, try to pass anti-gay legislation or whatever, end up getting caught in the bathroom with their pants around their ankles, trying to suck a dick through a glory hole. Yeah. And it's absolutely. like, if you had experienced your sexuality in a healthy fashion, maybe you wouldn't be putting yourself in this type of compromising position. That's right. Or you could go, go suck a dick at a glory hole if that's what you're into, but just not right, be that's afraid what you're about into. it. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but exactly. yeah, I agree with you. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or, you know, healthy sexuality in the sense that if you're out cruising, you know, George Michael got busted and he was like, yes, it was me. I did. Yes, that's and, right. Right. In, As, in, in, a, in sort of a subconscious, I just think it's worth saying, like a subconscious attempt probably to kind of destigmatize the entire process of cruising and why right. why we cruise as a community and, and what that what that means to us. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, whereas the toxic response would be like, deny, deny, deny. 
yeah, that wasn't me or, mm. you know, or I d I've done something I highly regret. That's another right. way to toxify it. Right. You know, I apologize to my family. Right. Yeah. I am going kind of into thing. counseling for my sex addiction. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is a bit of a hard segue, but I, I want to touch on this before we're done the interview. Because sure. this is so prescient and interesting for what's something that's happening with you right now. Mm-hmm. You just reconnected with a big part of your birth family. Yes. Including your birth father and a brother. Mm-hmm. So how did that come about, Mike? <laughs> uh, 23andMe. I, oh, sweet. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have not... The identity of my birth father has been hidden from me for pretty much my whole life. Okay. And I went on 23andMe about a year and a half ago. Uh, after my grandmother passed away, just to try to figure out some more about my my the other half, the part of the family that I don't know. And I don't know if you know how 23andMe works. So okay. you were on 23andMe in order just to learn more about the side of the family that you hadn't learned about before. Yeah. And they send you an email every month with yes. all of your latest DNA matches. Yes, because and, they just want you to pay more and more and more money yeah, until you're and, broke with 23andMe. Right, That's right. been my experience, at least. Yeah. And it's like, oh, 1% match, 0.78% match. I'm coming into contact with all of these like fourth cousins, twice removed type people. Sure. So I'd, I'd stopped looking. Yes. Or looking at the emails anyway. One and, question Yeah. this stage, just because it's fun. Did you learn... <laughs> Did you learn anything about your background that you that surprised you with 23andMe? I have white relatives. Sure. Uh, <laughs> as do a lot of as do a lot of people of color for yeah. sure. Yeah. That was really That's kind it. of surprising. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, just in contrast for me, you know, they couldn't narrow down my ethnicity any more than Eastern European Jew. Oh, wow. Because the Jews uh, that I descend from were so nomadic that they're just like, yeah, you know, this is the Jews. You're you're descended from the Jews from Eastern Europe, like no specific countries. And I was like, uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Thank you so <laughs> much. Right. So I'm just I'm just wondering, like, were, were you were able to narrow it down to specific countries and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. yeah I am cool. also apparently 10% Jewish or 9% Jewish or something like that. Well, I'm not surprised because that's where the anxiety comes from. <laughs> I love it. That's the, I'm 9% neurotic. Yes. Yes. So. Well, we've always known that. So. Cool. But, so, yeah. So you made some initial yeah. discoveries. I made some initial discoveries. They were, they weren't substantial. So I stopped looking for a while. And then earlier this week, I was just kind of like finishing up my work day and I'm checking my email and there's a, a few days old email in my inbox from 23andMe. And I'm like, eh, I haven't checked maybe since the end of last year. Let me take a look. I go and look and I sort by a percentage relation. And I realize that there's somebody in there who's a 26% match. Uh-huh. Yep. And I'm like, huh, Okay click and I'm looking around and I'm like, okay, first of all, this dude looks like me. Uh -huh. Wow. And then, you know, click around a little bit more and they're like, this is your half brother. Oh my God. And I'm like, huh? Okay. So wow. <laughs> I, I, then I get his name. I first I message, I message him right away. 
And then I Google him to try to find more information. He has a very common name. So sure. no Google results. And then I go to LinkedIn and I find him on LinkedIn uh-huh. and I send him another message. And this is Tuesday, maybe five o'clock. By like 8.30, I have a response in my inbox. Uh-huh. And he's like, yep, I think we're brothers. Wow. So he was maybe a little ready to hear from you. It doesn't sound- He was sound... looking for me. He was looking for you. He was looking for me. That's lovely. That's very he was, nice. He was, as he in his words, he was internet stalking me. Oh, so had he already maybe found you previous he, to? He had already found me. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Very good. He had so, already found me and just didn't know how to break the ice. Yeah. You have to be emotionally careful, of course. Yes. Yeah. So, so I'm sure he was really happy to hear from you. He was. And when, when did you pop on the old pandemic Zoom with him? We have, we have not Zoomed. Oh, you haven't? We, I, thought, uh, I thought, okay. We conversed via telephone. Okay, cool, cool. The first day, mm -hmm. and we've texted. Sweet. Okay, but awesome. But we have not actually like done a face-to-face -face thing yet. Okay, I thought you said in one of your Facebook updates that it was like looking in a mirror. And is that I was like, the pictures it, of him? It was like talking into a mirror. Oh um, man, even because, weirder. Wow. Yeah, we, we we look similar. We mm -hmm. sound similar. Oh wow. Oh wow. So it, it it's it's very very weird. Do you from your first few interactions, do you have anything else in common that you've noticed so far? We both really like Michael Jackson. Oh my god. Um, this is the best. <laughs> we both we both have a writing background. He majored in English in college. Wow. He is on the sensitive side emotionally. Uh-huh. Yeah. We just yeah, it, it was it talking to him was just very easy. Like it felt like we clicked for somebody I didn't know existed a week ago. Oh man. We clicked in very it was one of those things where like you have like a long lost twin almost. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. You know, this is, this is your, how, how much older or younger is he than you? I am significant. I, he's 15 years younger than I am or cool. 14 years younger than I am. Wow. You've got this cool younger brother now. Yeah. He's, he's going to be so hip and with it. If he's 15 <laughs> years younger, you're going to, he's going to explain TikTok to you. It's going to be oh, great. <laughs> somebody please explain TikTok to me. Cause and I then, feel like a Neanderthal. Yes. Yeah. So that being said, have you had any contact with your dad as well at this point? Not yet. Okay. My brother has a relationship with my father. Indications point towards my father not being the best dude in the world. Gotcha. Okay. And, you know, I'm not 100% sure at this point that I want to have a relationship with him. Yeah. 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 I, I know his name. I know what he looks like. Uh -huh. And those are kind of the, like, I just wanted confirmation that the man existed. Sure. That you weren't an immaculate conception. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, and now I know he exists. I know he's alive. I know that I have the option to reach out to him if I desire. Yes. And then the rest of that, the rest of everything else is in my hands. That's amazing. It's, I feel like that's such a great place to, uh, end this interview because I'm guessing that the next time you're interviewed by one of the former guests of your podcast, you'll be a little further along in this journey. In the process, yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be really great for your, you know, I hope that everybody continues to tune into the podcast to listen to sort of the next part of your story 
as it develops because that this is a really interesting place for you to be in right now and really amazing getting to hear a lot of the sort of bits and pieces and threads that led to this right now you know sort of focusing on on more your early life for yeah. for the rest of this so for, for me it's been a pleasure thank you for i always love talking your... to you louis i was like talking to you buddy. <laughs> thanks for sitting down on your own podcast to be interviewed today. <laughs> yeah it's weird it's weird to be in this seat is it yeah yeah l l let's end with that how did it feel it being in being in this part of it this part of being a podcast <laughs> podcast guest i mean i have a lot more empathy for my guests because they don't know what they're being asked before I ask. Sure. So it is a bit like being in a hot seat, but I'm also being asked questions by somebody that I know isn't like a muckraker, not somebody who's looking to, to, to be dramatic or anything like that. So it's, it's comfortable, but curious. Yeah. I, I would yep. say. It's a transition for sure. Yeah. It's a different, it's, a, it's definitely different, but listen, you did great. Thank you. You're I appreciate welcome. those words of affirmation. Big, big shout out to you, Louis. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to interview me, putting me in a hot seat, asking me such great questions. I really, really appreciate it. Everybody listening to the show, you can find Louis online at Louis4711 on Instagram and Twitter. And make sure you go back and listen to episode four in which uh, Louis guest appeared. And uh, also make sure you check out his uh, podcast, Kick the Jukebox, and XOXO Riverdale, Riverdale. I think it's called XOXO Riverdale or Riverdale XOXO. One or the other. <laughs> but it's a podcast about uh, the TV show Riverdale. So uh, again, Louis Perlman, thank you. And uh, if you like this format, if you like the format of the last show, which was like a round table, hit me up and uh, we'll do more of them in the future. Detoxicity is hosted and produced by me, Mike Joseph. The music was composed by Calvin Williams and the logo was designed by Jacob Block. A special thanks to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration. Comments, suggestions, ratings, and any form of feedback is always greatly appreciated. Again, I can be found on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy and on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can drop me a line old school style at DetoxPod at gmail.com old school style we're talking about email as opposed to actual snail mail so see how far we've come folks <laughs> i thank you for listening and i wish you and your loved ones continued health and safety y'all take care peace